sure? correct but Well, sure? we'll see. Okay. It's counting. All right. Um, Hi. It's no longer blinking. Hi, Chris. Hey, Jason. How, how are, are you? you? I'm great. great to see you. It's great to see you too, especially under these circumstances. Meaning? Meaning we are here to record another episode oh, of Full of, Cast yes. and Crew, where we take a film this week. It's 1982's John Carpenter masterpiece. Masterpiece. Classic. Classic masterpiece. Much maligned. At the time. Yes. Yeah. No longer. We're so much smarter now than we were then. This is Reagan era. That's true. You know, just to show how dumb people were. In some ways, a very similar time. I'm sure we'll we'll get into that. Shoulder pads, red ties, crazy Republican president wreaking havoc across the globe. Well, 1982's- Yeah. Well, I would take Reagan back in a heartbeat over this clown. Not to get too political on a movie podcast, but- yeah, you know, I know we've we've tried to stay away from politics yeah. and be absolutely apolitical and right down the middle because you know, right down the middle, fascists uh, wear sneakers too, well, as Michael. Now Jordan you said. did it. As I was saying, Full Cast and Crew is a podcast where we pick a film and go down the rabbit hole of its IMDb Full Cast and Crew page to find unexpected connections, strange trivia, blah 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 quotes, and and wow. and uh, and odd digressions. Which we had uh, even before the even intro, before the intro. intro was finished. This week we are doing 1982's *The Thing*, a movie which IMDb describes as a research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearance of its victims. Isn't it funny how in that one sentence it both describes the movie but completely misses the vast genius and brilliance of the movie at the same time? That does not leave a lot out. That's plot true, wise, and yet, <laughs> and yet, and yet, there is so much that goes to it. It is, it is that kind of like almost John. What is it, John Cage? Who did the uh, Silence? Um, sure, Chris. John Cage reference for yeah, everyone for, listening. Any of you listen? Tell us, give us a brief any digression. Avant garde about uh, John Cage music uh, fan. Well, he's the, the guy who yeah, sat at a piano silently for forty two hours, well, and that's that was the one a, that a was brilliant <laughs> magnum opus of some sort. Yes, that's the one. Was, that was he in on to. the joke, or was it art? With a capital A. It's always hard to tell. Hey, this is Matt the Engineer. So the old John Cage, four minutes and 33 seconds composition. You know, you may remember that from art history class or some humanities uh, elective that you took in college. The inspiration for this, uh, if memory serves me right, was Cage uh realize that there's never really any silence even if you plug your ears for instance you're still going to hear your body make sounds and all sounds make frequencies and frequencies we perceive as pitch so pitch is music and so even if the performer in this case sits there at their piano or at their instruments and doesn't do anything there's sounds around them like the environment makes sound so since there's sound there's frequency it could be pitch so a little out there, but um, it made him pretty popular. Once you have that capital A. That sounds like something A. that I would hear on the um, NPR. What's the music rundown, the concert rundown every morning <laughs> of like concerts you would concerts you would never go to? Uh, A gig alert tonight. <laughs> the mostly uh, people banging on garbage cans <laughs> ensemble will be playing a cacophonous tribute to the silent symphonies of John <laughs> Cage. Anywhere near Brooklyn tonight, <laughs> and you know Uyghur rap, then... Have we got a treat for you? Have we got a treat for you? <laughs> Tuvan throat singing meets do you love Broadway you? musicals in, yeah, John Schaefer's Gig Alert. I do like Tuvan I think I could singing. do a pretty good John Schaefer. 
Um, John Schaefer's Gig Alert. <laughs> Tonight at the Bell House. Tuvan Throat Singers meet in a cacophonous rendition of Grease the Musical. Hosted. That is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we are doing uh, The Thing, which is... Uh, Directed by John Carpenter and starring Nick Nolte as McReady, <laughs> Donald Pleasance as Blair, Franklin, Franklin Ajaye as Knowles, I can't. Oh, Jay Leno as Palmer, Carl Weathers as Childs, Brian Dennehy as Copper, and Charles Hallahan as Norris, which now, is the only historical inevitability in the bunch. Brilliant. And uh, Chris is referencing alternative casting, which w- were all explored at one point during the development of the film, which kind of is amazing to think about how good, bad, or whacked out crazy the movie would have been with the with any or all of those people in those Absolutely. roles. Jay Leno in The Thing. I, mean, oh, I, geez, I, I don't know, guys. I think it was some sort of ice creature coming in, guys. I don't know what it is. <laughs> well, this is a side of you that really that cracks you up really with a bad up. Jay Leno. I do love alternative casting yeah. things. Like um, yeah. on another podcast, I was talking about Face Off and talking about all mm-hmm. the different permutations oh, really? that considered. And if I were a rich eccentric, I would finance multiple... Uh, productions of the same Ooh, film. That would just be to cool. Try a different cast, just to remake it with like. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, they ended up with the cast they ended up with, which I think is fantastic. Among the many things I love about this movie, so it's funny. There's a lot of criticism, I guess, from back in the day when it came out in 1982, and it famously did not perform well for a variety of reasons we can get into. But one of the things that was most often cited in the negative reviews was a lack of character definition. That the the people in the movie were really just dispensable vehicles for destruction at the hands of the alien shape-shifting creature. But it's like, yeah, or as I would like to just read brief, briefly, the uh, the screenwriter, Bill Lancaster, mm-hmm. who uh, turns out to be Burt Lancaster's son, and he wrote The Bad News Bears. This, this I just want to take a second to read. This is from the, the actual screenplay. I found Mac's character description, and it was so succinct and brilliant. I thought for all the flowery language, if you ever tried to write a screenplay and you try to describe characters, yeah. if you're like me, I write these paragraphs to say things about a character that's just so useless and really not good. This, th- these are the character descriptions. McCready, 35, helicopter pilot, likes chess, hates the cold, the pay is good. That's the description. It's so good, right? Gary, 46, the station manager, stiff, ex-army officer, wears a handgun, on and on. These are are the character descriptions. Looking at it now, and obviously you have these great character actors, but then you read these quick descriptions that existed before those guys were ever cast, and they're so spot on. That's all you really need, isn't it? I think that the the idea of there's not enough character differentiation, that's the kind of thing that I never quite buy. In reading how... um, this project coming to mm-hmm. the screen at all, John Carpenter wasn't too crazy about the idea to begin with. Yeah. And they were apparently looking to a few different people to potentially uh, right. adapt to the book that originally The Thing from Another World had been based on. This was not like a passion project yeah. for anybody. Right. At one point, though, John Carpenter did find what he wanted to draw from it. Right. Specifically, I want to focus on the the shape-shifting aspect of the alien right. and the paranoia that like it sure. could be any one of us. The Thing Lives Within. And other people cared less about that or, you know, all those things. But but to find that sort of simple nugget and what do you need to explore that, the the characters that you need are pretty simple. I don't tend to like a lot of um, 
uh, exposition Expl- or explain or exposition or and explanatory is kind Ex- of the same thing. I was ex- well, I was going to say yeah. explanatory dialogue. I'm glad sure. I was well starting to think you like, can just say exposition instead of explanatory dialogue. I meant explanatory kind of this- backstory. That like being like, wow. oh, you know, this really means a lot to me because, you know, my dad was oh, like I this. See. Sure. You know, having something that makes it a little yeah. bit too neat. Sure. That who knows why this matters to all these people, except for the fact that they are in a life or death situation. Right. So they act yes. in ways where you have enough of their sure. character. They'll take sort of broad strokes. And then it's the actors themselves sure. that breathe some life and specificity into them, yep. which is the kind of thing that it's it can be a fool's errand to try to write. Absolutely. You're just dropped in to the Antarctic. Mm-hmm. There's a wordless beginning. And through the use of visual clues and shots, you are told this story of a wolf-like dog being pursued by a helicopter with a pilot and a guy with a rifle who's trying to shoot the dog. And you have no idea what's going on. Um, and nor does any of the guys that you meet from the Antarctic station, including yeah. McCready and all the ones that we've that we've mentioned before. Child. What's he doing? Circling the camp. Who is he? Said Norge or something on the side. It's Norwegian. People differentiate and say, like, well, it's a genre picture. It's a horror movie, so it's not really a real movie. It's not a piece of art, or it's not this or that. The other thing, the first thing I was grabbed with watching this horror movie was just how good it looked yeah, and how well it was photographed and how good the cinematographer was. And I really appreciate that when I watch a movie like this, because I feel like everything kind of looks the same now. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so easy to get something to look really, really good. Yeah. But in this type of movie, it's also so easy for it to veer off and just be a B movie that nobody really... Mm-hmm. spent the money to make look good. But man, the shots are so well composed. It's so well thought out. You're obviously in the hands of a master. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to me that Carpenter had the journey that he had to make this movie, as you said, kind of didn't want to do it. And P.S., he at one point dropped out because uh, a passion project yes. of his, El Diablo. El Diablo. Like, <laughs> and I was trying to, I couldn't, I couldn't even skim the Wikipedia entry on the plot. It, I know it did end up getting made, and for all I know, it's great. Fast, this is what's interesting to me about entertainment in general. Here's a guy, he makes this movie, and he's very frank in many of the interviews, even ones that he's done recently, to say, man, this movie really harmed my career when it came out. Yeah. Like, it was, he, he lost opportunities that had been slated because this movie did not perform. Yet now, you know, what, 20, 30 years later, it was 1982? Mm-hmm. How many years later is 1982 to 2018, Chris? Six. 112? I was going to say 13. Okay, 613 (laughs) years later, it's canon. It's like one of the greatest, to put it in a genre stack, certainly one of the greatest horror movies ever made. But at the time, it was a real problem for his career. It was derailed when the movie came out. So it's just kind of fascinating when you talk about critical reaction to things. Of course, it means so much because you could be killed by the reviews uh, or you could live by the reviews. Yeah. But also kind of fascinating that his own audience turned on this. His hor- The horror audience, to hear him tell it, didn't like this movie at all. He talks a lot about the Cinefantastique mm-hmm. magazine that had a cover article about the thing that said, is this the most hated movie of all time? Um, yeah. Now, I think a lot of that was probably because the practical makeup effects with the alien were so over the top and out of control and sick mm-hmm. and great 
that, you know, imagine seeing that on a screen in 1982. Really, Alien was probably the I think Alien was like 79. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of similarities, both of them having this kind of blue collar, working, yes. yep. working stiff aesthetic of yes. these people sort of just doing their job yep. in an unromanticized way. Both of them were at a, relatively close to where they were. And they're also very um, contained. One yes. on the spaceship, one one in <clears throat> yeah. uh, Antarctica. Uh, but I believe that was successful when it came sure. out. So I wonder why the criticism of this mm-hmm. was particularly that it was gory and violent and nihilistic, which I guess yeah. answers the question because that – what is the one thing that really does separate the two – well, is the fact that, you know, Ripley wins. Exactly. And I would also say, and maybe equally important, in Alien, you have you have a thing, a creature. Yeah. Okay? You don't have what you have in the thing, which is you don't have the iconic swept helmet head alien creature that is mm-hmm. loose on the ship and wrecking havoc. You have, it could be a dog, it could be the dock, it could be... Right, it, it really it, is a kind of, uh, it is terror, it is fear, exactly. it can live in wherever you find it. And so you don't really have a character, is what yeah. I'm saying. Like, in Alien, that thing is a badass. And in a way, you have respect for it when you're watching the movie, mm-hmm. because it's an identifiable presence. It has a personality. Mm-hmm. Whereas the the Alien in The Thing doesn't have that same personality. And also, right. I think in Alien, you have Sigourney Weaver. You have that kind of curveball for the time of this female protagonist in a man's world, Mm -hmm, let's say, mm -hmm. in the way they're setting up the space environment. And I think you did have, I, you know, I think you did have more character development in Alien than in The Thing, if I think about it. I think of, there's just more scenes to me of them kind of sitting around and being themselves prior to things really kicking off in that movie. And I wonder if the, if you just have a little more character development, you have, you have Ripley. You have you have a character in the alien. You just have some other elements. I'm not no, saying I, it's better. I'm just no, saying no, this I, is I, the I hear exactly what you're saying. And th- that all makes everything you're saying makes sense to me. I think the one thing that I would disagree with is I don't think you get that much more character development because I think certainly the first time, you know, spoiler for 1979's <laughs> Alien, uh, that uh, it pops out of John Hurt. Yeah, uh, John Hurt rather. Um, that's real. I'm sure he's on. had that confusion his whole career. I know. Both of those guys, it. right? They both, both, both of them hate it. Yeah. I'm sure the grass is always greener. It always is, yeah. <laughs> Whose career would you rather have? I don't know. I loved Chud. I think they're both dead. So that's not a. There is uh, that to consider. They're, they're, <laughs> well, that's not the Are you sure John Hurt Is John Hurt dead? I think so. Yes. You know what? You know what's the saddest moment on the internet every day? for someone is what just occurred. So I Google John Hurt. And when you get to the sixth word in his biography, Sir John Vincent Hurt, CBE, was (laughs) an English actor, right? Like someday when someone goes in and changes is to was on your Wikipedia entry. Right. That's a moment. So anyway. I hope it's a loved one that does that. No, yeah, it's, just just some, it. <laughs> it's just some. It's just some. The 400-pound uh, person yeah, the, the, in his <laughs> basement that Trump referred to. <laughs> exactly. Um, anyway, so yeah, the alien, the thing comparison is inevitable. And it's in, in, in a way, as I was watching the movie last night, I was sort of like, it was almost weird to me that someone even made the thing after Alien, even though, of course, that's the most obvious Hollywood move ever is like, hey, that yeah. worked. Let's make another one that's sort of like it, but different. Um but what's mostly different 
is John Carpenter. I mean, you're just in the hands of this guy who has an understanding of this specific medium, I think, better than anyone really ever has. Yeah, would you, would you, wow. Well, I mean, if you took just, I don't know, Friday the 13th and The Thing. Friday the 13th? Yeah, isn't that John Carpenter? No, are you thinking of Halloween? I mean, Halloween. <laughs> See. Don't worry about it. Look, that's what you get here. You know, I could, we could edit that out and make it seem as if we're all knowing, but I mean, yeah, I confused him. And you know what? You listening at home, you <laughs> fucking confuse it too. All right. So get off yeah, your go. soapbox and don't criticize me for confusing Halloween and whatever the other one was that I said. Hey, I what was the other a, one? It was a pretty gentle correction. Everything. No, okay? no, no. I'm not mad at you. I'm mad. I'm saying that everyone that's judging me right now, as <laughs> I can feel your judginess. Yes. Halloween. I mean, dude, between Halloween and this movie, full stop, let's let's just pretend he didn't make any other amazing movies after that, which he obviously did. Like, that's about 90% of the, the modern horror iconography and tempo and music and editing and characterization and scares of a unique kind. I mean, this came from this guy's mind. That is sure, that's certainly true. But Ridley Scott, who made Alien which came before this, came before both. Yeah. Um, also did a lot with that as well. And again, but, I'm but not Ridley trying Scott's to take not anything a away. Director. John, John Carpenter's a, a good, horror director. Yeah, yeah that's a good okay. point. Ridley Scott makes all kinds of movies. Yeah. Um, and he happened to make a space horror movie in Alien. Yeah. But I'm just saying that a John Carpenter movie to me has its own kind of rhythm and it unfolds in a very... Carpenter-esque way. Yeah. And even though in this movie is one where he didn't do the music, which is well, typical for him, although he kind of did. Yeah, I was Ennio say, Morricone a- say like, why'd you bother hiring me if you just wanted me to do you? Now, when the thing came out, it came out on the same day as Blade Runner, which I did not know. And it was two weeks after E.T. opened. It was just trounced in the box office because E.T. became yeah. this phenomena within a couple of weeks. It was like, oh, my God, lovable, cuddly aliens who don't want to take over <laughs> the entire world. Although... I'm not so sure. What are those botany experiments those guys are doing in the beginning? I mean, they were getting ready to do something oh, tr- plant-based. The, yeah. Like, that's probably where veganism came from. <laughs> they came back and <laughs> oh, planted that. Is, that. Exa- that's right. This is a slow-moving yes. takeover. Yep. So you can imagine, and, and Carpenter has said that, you know, he just thought, like you said, the nihilistic tone, nihilistic. nihilistic? I think both are acceptable. Are they? Okay. Thank you for Certainly being Certainly by me. Thank you for being kind. The nihilistic tone was just not the national mood and everyone was in love with E.T. I mean, how could you yeah. not be, right? Full Casting Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76 and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy, delivered daily. Well, I want to read you one thing that um, one of the critics said when the thing came out. 
He said, quote, John Carpenter's The Thing is a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie that mixes horror with science fiction to make something that is fun as neither one thing or the other. Sometimes it looks as if it aspired to be the quintessential moron movie of the 80s, a virtually storyless feature composed of lots of laboratory concocted special effects with the actors used merely as props to be hacked, slashed, disemboweled and decapitated, finally to be eaten and then regurgitated as guess what? more laboratory concocted special effects. Now, I wanted to ask you about this because I don't know if this is just my sick mind and the sick minds of my friends. I have one friend in particular who actually worked in the special effects industry in Hollywood. No kidding. And um, I actually asked him if he was available to come be a guest on this one because I know him to be a The Thing obsessive. And, um, but I lost my train of thought. Uh, You asked uh, for a guest we, you, um, to, to come from, I assume, Los Angeles? No, yeah, I asked him to fly in. Strangely enough, he didn't want to <laughs> fly all the way in for nothing to do this. No. Um, well, I don't know if this will prompt or yeah. while, you, while you're thinking. You know, one of the things I was very surprised to read. This is your read, fault for coming in at 4.30. My mind is sharp at like 3, 3.30. <laughs> Once we get into 435. So one of the things in those negative reviews was taught was how often they mentioned how uh, explicit it was. Yeah. Which you, you, you know, pretty soon after this, you had the straight to video mm-hmm. market and this spawned so many imitations in the direct to video market. So there's so much of it that actually this seems almost quaint because sure. some of the effects are a little mechanical. Some of it is awesome. Mm-hmm. But but the fact that somebody would be like offended by it or shocked, to me actually was really surprising to read that that was something that people took issue with, especially because this is not Texas Chainsaw Massacre where you're looking at a human hacking up another human. Right. Not that it was any less scary, but it's scary in a different way that to me does not seem overly offensive or hard. You know, it, this is a, a non-real thing. And so therefore the threat isn't there. So, so it really did surprise me that that's what people were taking issue with. Yeah. But in the same way, people love dogs. And one of the first things you see when you see this creature is horrible things happening to dogs. Now, granted, one dog, who, by the way, is great. That dog. <laughs> yeah, Jed did a great Jed job. Jed is awesome and starred in many other famous dog movies, by the way. Jed was White Fang. Wow. This, so, this is a. Uh... I told you I did my research on this one. Um, anyway, I, honestly, I'm, I'm making a comedic point to illustrate something serious. Is there a German word for that? Uh, yeah, she's Gefassen. Great. In a way, when you saw the dripping Giger creature and alien, it wasn't human. It was, it was other, it was alien. And so it, it wasn't disgusting in the same way. And also the color palette of the alien in right. alien was very monochromatic. And All, it had a sleekness. It had a sleekness. This is this horrific melange of beast and human and it's, um, and it, I think that's a disturbing part. And I think mm-hmm. also the viscera in this was, was more, there's more red and flesh and stuff like that than there was in alien. Yeah. So, um, but I also think that we have to make a distinction between practical effects, mm-hmm. which this is all practical effects, meaning there's no digital effects. Sometime after this movie, we started getting into the realm of digital effects, which can be so much more detailed, but kind of lacking the immediacy of, of what these effects were. Yeah. And so I think that when you see effects like this in man, the effects are just, they are sick. I remember what I wanted to say all that time ago. 
Remember when I lost my Remember when I lost my train of thought last week? I remember what it was. So my friend Jason Bakudis, who used to work in the special effects industry, um, when we would watch movies like this, and to this day, when I watched this movie again last night, when the effects are as we would say in our high school nomenclature, which has not changed at all in the 40 years since we spoke like this, we would say, oh, that's sick. And we would be laughing while watching it because it's so over the top. Yeah. It's kind of like when you're watching um, a great Hong Kong martial arts film and it's just staged to be so over the top that part of your reaction is amazement at the physical complications. And then part of it is just a sense of humor about how over the top yes. it is. Now, when I watched the movie again last night, when when those creature moments are happening and the practical effects are happening, I'm laughing even as I'm like horrified. Do you yeah. have a similar reaction to that? Do you laugh and go like, oh my God. In subsequent viewings, absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's definitely one scene where uh, after, what's his name? Uh, Hal, um, after Norris's, after Norris, uh, again, spoiler for the movie, after Norris has turned into a thing and then um, been blown up and then its head, yes. his head falls off, sprouts legs. <laughs> sprouts and then crab gets shot legs. But then at one point, literally, <laughs> yeah. he sticks out his tongue and his tongue, like, like a frog's, the table leg. a yeah. cartoon yeah. frog's tongue, wraps around so the table good. leg to like pull him away. McCready like stops to watch it yeah. as if like, ah, as if he's commenting on the effect of yes. like, that's, that's awesome. I hadn't, really, uh, hadn't expected that. I was just talking about, it, there's a similar thing where he, he has the like Wile E. Coyote dynamite exploder thing. Yes. And, and the creature similarly pops up and, and slithers out a tentacle to wrap around the, the, what do you call that thing? Plunger? No, that's too toilet, toiletish. Um, igniter? No. It's like a... Uh, Dynamite exploder. Uh, oh, oh, I got it. A detonator. Detonator. De- detonator. Yeah. Oh, well, no, detonator is more, I think, of like an electrical device that's remotely controlled from afar. Well, this is this back is like before a, the electricity. This, like this, this is, is like 1982, Wiley before Coyote. they had electricity. Well, anyway, the thing does the similar thing. It, it, it grabs that thing and, and sinks right. it away. And kind of one of them only, there's not very many comic moments in the movie. But I'm curious about the reaction. I don't know if other people have or just the sick minds of myself and my friends that I kind of grew up with watching movies like this, where we just laugh at the worst Cronenberg-esque horror. And just the more sick it is, the more we're just sort of like laughing in reaction to it. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's a common reaction or just a a troubled reaction from our troubled lives. Uh, I'm sure in this case, both are true. But I will say (laughs) that the commonality of it, and I heard somebody talking about this recently, is that comedy and horror Mm. are pretty close as genres because both of them do involve exaggerating elements of real life in order to get the effect that they're going for. And they're also the two genres that that produce physical reactions in the audience, either screaming or laughing. Yeah. I think there I'm probably are a lot of elements of comedy in there that I that I think Carpenter and I think most horror directors will will include because you almost need a stopgap to the horror. Yeah, those like hiccups of comedy, I think, just sort of um, sort of reset. I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, and when you find the time, 
I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. Um, oh, anyway, one thing I was going to say was another thing that was cut. And, and I think this is the line between this kind of movie becoming a B movie and perhaps becoming a horror icon movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I read something that there was one character that was called the box thing. Yeah. So there was a moment where I guess maybe they were going to take the ability of the thing to assume any shape. It could be a sofa. It could yeah. be a settee. If if they had done that, I was thinking that would have been fun to see. Like mm-hmm. you're wondering which of us is the thing. You sit down in your metal folding chair. <laughs> it turns out, guess what? The metal folding chair is now the thing and it snaps your ass off or something. Right. Like, But that would have been probably the line between this turning over into a B movie where, right. you, where, where you're doing that for comedic effect. Right. Uh, you were talking before about how great it looked, uh, which yeah. it does. And part of that, I think, is just the setting, mm-hmm. the idea of being out. Yeah. It's already terrifying. It's already <laughs> terrifying. And um, and it's all men. Uh, it, yeah. The only which woman is, the only woman involved? Adrian, Adrian Barbeau. Adrian Barbeau as the chess computer. Mrs. John Carpenter at the time. Yeah. The choice of setting to be in that snowy wilderness was kind of unique to Mm -hmm. be. This is a kind of uh, closed environment that you don't, wouldn't have often had seen to open on the image of a helicopter chasing a dog. Like I said, everybody likes dogs. You know, there's something about all of these choices that he was making add to the bleakness Mm -hmm. of the point of view of the film. Mm -hmm. Um, which, Which is encapsulated perfectly, as I guess so many John Carpenter movies of the era were, by Kurt Russell. Like, Kurt yeah. Russell in this era is is both, he's one of those actors when you watch him in this kind of 80s era. Um, he was a thing then. He was a massive star then, yeah. right? And and he was a star of his time. Um, and he still is. But, yeah. but these performances in... The Thing, you know, Escape from New York, um, Big Trouble in Little China. Like, he's the encapsulation of that Carpenter worldview, and he wears it so well, even though he didn't like wearing the weird sombrero hat he mentioned. Oh, really? Yeah, he didn't like that at first. (laughs) I don't know that I I would either. The effects. Rob Bottin. Okay. Rob Bottin, who also wanted wanted to have a part in the film. Yes. According to Wikipedia. And who also wanted his characters not to be filmed in the way that ultimately they were filmed in the thing. He wanted them filmed in silhouette or backlit or using a rim light. Right. He didn't he didn't think they should be so exposed. Right. And there's an anecdote shared by Dean Cundy who says that they always joked that if Rob if it was up to Rob, he would build the creatures to be incredibly interesting and imaginative and then not put any light on them because he was afraid of showing them. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was so fascinating. And also, you know, one of the things that is just great to think about with movies like you were talking about with the alternative casting is, man, just think about how many things have to go right to to make something that stands the test of time. Yeah. And to to hear Carpenter say that the biggest conflict on the set was between Rob Bottin and Dean Cundey, who had totally two different philosophies about how to film the most important stuff that would be in the movie. And then to hear 
the actors talk about something else we forget, which is they have to act opposite nothing. The creatures yeah. weren't there. You know, Russell's talking about he's playing the scene to a wall with an X on it or a box or, you know, and 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 he has a funny quote where he says, you know, I would look around after the shot and realize there's nine guys looking at one object with nine different imaginings going on. And so for that to hold together as a finished product when all that stuff takes place after the fact is yeah. kind of fascinating, too. Oh, that's that is interesting. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm here for, Chris, is to. Thanks. Thanks a lot. To bring man. up interesting <laughs> points for you to then react to at such a and pace. And you should just say, wow. And just say, wow. Yeah, I see. I bring them up at such a pace that you really don't, you don't really have much time to kind of get in them because by the time you really dig in and have There's something to say. There's already another one. I'm already going. I mean, I'm ready to go to my next one. Well, before you do, though, it is interesting, you know, that he, um, I guess he lost that battle with the cinematographer. Yeah. You know, something like Jaws, everybody would always say, like, one of the great things about it is you really, you don't see the thing, yeah. the Jaws, the, yep. the shark until such and such. Or so many horror movies where the implication, the tension is stretched. There is a kind of boldness to this of mm-hmm. making the monster such a presence. Totally. And the, and the a visceral. Risk. A risk. And a risk, yeah. Because, you know? you know, and like some people thought it looked kind of silly. Yeah. I did, you know, for I loved it. And I did love, like you said, how how visceral it looked. And I thought the design, I read the same thing that, you know, this creature had been going through the galaxy for millions of years and picked up little bit. So, you know, the, the sort yeah. of patchwork element of it. Yeah. But particularly the scene where, uh, toward the beginning, where... Uh, yeah, when he's doing the autopsy. When, when uh, Wilford Brimley is doing the autopsy of uh, the dead creature. Yeah. Is the kind of thing that you can't get with CG of just oh, how yeah. like into yeah, physically hands he are in the breaking guts. it and getting there yeah. and getting into the guts and you see something that is so unique and it is terrifying to see that corpse of the thing because yeah. it is physically really there. Yeah, it's a unique kind of of terror because the real thing that's this is really more more about the terror between them and, and you know the real yeah. set piece of the film is the distrust between them and the scene where they're on the couch and testing the blood. Like that's yeah. what encapsulates the whole thing. And that wouldn't be quite as potent if you didn't have those moments where you do explicitly see and there's no there's no subtlety, there's no right. holding back. There's just showing you this this thing. It's funny, you know, when I watch the movie, yeah, the effects, I, I, I look at the effects and I think they're amazing for their time and I, and I get them, but I'm, it's, it's the other stuff about the movie that I react to most strongly. Yeah. You know? Um, but Kurt Russell said in a recent presentation of the movie that he thought it was the, the, the effects that, as he said, disallowed some audiences and critics and reviewers to be able to get past the horrificness of the monster to watch the movie. Mm-hmm. Now when we watch this, we can get past that because we've seen vastly more sophisticated things on right. screen. It's interesting that the very thing, your very point, the very thing that really is the core essence of the movie was the thing that turned audiences off at the time. Yeah. And, and, and now with the passage of time, we can come back and appreciate it for, for the other stuff. Like the, it didn't even really occur to me until you said that. When I watch the movie, I'm, I'm really reacting to all the other stuff that I like about it. Not the monster. Yeah. Not, the, not that stuff. Because I think whenever I see that stuff in any movie – 
I make allowances for it in my mind that I know it's not real and it's what it is. Um, that said, I did watch this um, with my brother-in-law last night, um, and he literally jumped out of his chair when the blood testing scene happened and the little thing leaped out of the uh, Petri dish. Yeah. He, he literally jumped out of his chair, which I thought was a great testament to the movie's ability to still work. Yeah. yeah. This is not to take anything away from special effects, but they are helpful. There's got to be a certain level of competence, but this movie is no less effective, even mm-hmm. though we've moved past it technologically. Yeah. And even though there's some things where a dog's mouth opens and then another yeah. dog's, you know, and you can see kind of how mechanical yeah. it looks. But because there's so much else about it, the tension is built, the characters, despite what the critics might have said, you do feel like you're kind of living with them because there's no hackneyed attempt to force a narrative sort of on. Therefore, you are primed to, I think, accept it. You don't laugh at that. Well, I do. You don't laugh at it like, oh my gosh, what a stupid piece of crap thing. You laugh at it because it's like, oh my gosh, that's freaking awesome. Man, Richard Mazur. Mazur? Mazur? Oh, yeah. You know, this First is the thing. Three, People he, take for granted, you know, that everyone can pronounce everything. Yeah. But this is real life, real talk here, Chris. <laughs> Most people out there don't understand how to pronounce Richard Mazur. You know, I, I didn't know how to pronounce my own Mazur? name until I was in my early I think 20s. Jeff just said it was Mazur. I we have a colleague here who lives in the same town as Richard Mazur. Richard Mazur. Richard Mazur. Yeah. That sounds more Richard Mazur. How great is Richard Mazur? He is so good. What were what was his TV work that I'm thinking of? Well, I know I every time I'd see him, I was thinking Princeton could use a guy like Joel. Is that Paper Chase? No, <laughs> it's Risky Business. <laughs> oh. Isn't he Tom Cruise's dad in Risky Business? He's not the dad in Risky Business. Was I mean, he? I'll certainly cut it out if I'm wrong. But I, there was definitely something that I was like, no, 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 whoa, 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 back up. I'll certainly cut it out if I was wrong. Oh, absolutely. Yet you would leave in all of my befuddled I, mistakes. I would. Yeah. See, Chris, this is what I was yeah, saying. Risky business, Rutherford. Right, but that's not the father. No. He's the who guy, he's the Princeton interviewer. He's the guy who comes over to interview him for Princeton. Right. Okay, so, so you I see what I'm saying? I sort of see what you're saying. You sort of see what I'm saying. Well, <laughs> yes, your no, point no, was no, that he was right. the father. My point was that he wasn't. And when he proves not <laughs> to be, you're saying, I sort of <laughs> see what you're saying. Uh, oh, Happy Days. That's what I think of him as. Doug from Happy Days. What? <laughs> Yeah, he did an episode of Happy Days. Oh, that was him? Oh, and also One Day at a Time. That's what I'm really thinking about. He was David Kane on One Day at a Time. That's the role I think of him as. He was sort of like a, on TV in the 80s, he was, he was kind of like a, he was like Rob Reiner before Rob Reiner was <laughs> Rob Reiner. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can see that. There is something, you know, and there's something kind of sort of schlubby. Yeah. About him in a in a friendly and sort of very real way, which and I think both of them share, right? He's, Is that what he's you're al- he, He's also that guy, right? Yeah. Um, and I would like to coin a phrase on this podcast, which I'm not sure Richard Mazur qualifies. I mean, he's definitely a that guy. Yeah. But I also wanted to have a term of respect and recognition for- You're right, he was. For, for what I call working actor, man. Like, yeah. which I think is almost the more impressive thing to be than to be a star. Mm-hmm. And there's there's one in this movie. There's one in the thing. Um, these this is the definition of working actor, a guy whose name you probably don't know, um, but the actor who plays Knowles, T K Carter. Mm-hmm. I cut him loose on a ladder by the shack. 
I didn't lose. Yeah, we were up checking around this place. I found this. Look, it was stashed in this old oil furnace. Wind must have dislodged it, but I don't think he saw me find it. I made sure I got ahead of him on the tow line on the way back. I cut him loose. McCready? He's one of them. Working actor T.K. Carter. This guy's credits go from 1976 to the present day. If you want to know what success looks like, if you're getting into this acting game, that's success, man. Yeah. This guy has to worked. To continue working. To continue working every year in movies and TV. Look, I think uh, Keith David is more recognizable, but a similar sort of thing. Well, like Keith David's everywhere. that guy, though. That's okay. a different tier. And when I say working actor, I'm saying that as, as the term of utmost respect. So if I said, like, man, Chris Kapiniak, working actor, right? Yeah. Then we would like, it's like a high five. We'd be like, yeah, <laughs> that dude is a working actor. Can we talk about the poster? Because that yeah. poster is fucking cool. That poster is okay. Great. That is a, I, I think that is an iconic movie poster. Yeah. Um, something about the hand, the, the left hand of the figure and its, its articulation mm-hmm. being kind of different from the right hand. Yeah. I just love that. So, of course, I look at, you know, I, I, I dive into who did the poster. This is a documentary I want to watch. Drew Struzan, legend. He did, like, E.T. He did the Blade Runner poster. He did the original artwork for Blade Runner, but it wasn't used, and then they Ridley used it on the 2001 version. Yes, yeah. Um, uh-huh. He's done all the Star Wars posters. Like He also did... Um, and he's a comic book guy, too, I think. I w- well, I was going to say, I saw um, a the, the game Clue. The game. And I took a picture. I thought it was this comic book artist, Bill Shinkiewicz. Mm-hmm. And I tweeted at him. I was like, hey, did you do this? And he's like, no, I wish I did. But this is actually Struzan Drew who had Struzan. done this. I didn't realize that that was the same guy who did this because yeah. the Thing poster does look much more realistic than yeah. like the Blade Runner poster is yes. so stylized. Yes. And uh, this clue thing that I'm thinking of specifically. What's ironic that sort about of the poster stylization. is when... Carpenter says this in almost every interview about the thing. When he finally agreed to do the movie, as you know, being so reluctant, the one thing he didn't want to do, I just, I don't want to have a guy in a suit. I don't want to have a guy in a suit movie. He said, even in Alien, as great as Alien is, at the end, it's a guy in a suit. Yeah. Right? Meaning a guy inside a practical effects suit or whatever. Um, And he did not want to do that in this movie. And that's part of the reason why they cut the stop motion animation sequence is that it both looked a little bit like a guy in a suit, but it also didn't have the reality in quotes of the practical effects sequences right. because it was a stop motion thing. But then it's kind of funny so the that poster the poster is, is a guy yeah. in a suit. Oh, and I have one more cool conspiracy theory for you. Did you stumble across this? Anyway, the, the, <laughs> the there's a conspiracy theory, which I love, which I want to mention, um, which also has to do with Dean Cundey as the cinematographer. And I guess there's a commentary track on the DVD where someone asks Cundy if he and John Carpenter discussed doing a subtle lighting trick to imply which of the guys might at any one time be the thing. Right. And Cundy didn't answer the question until the scene where they're testing the blood. And as the scene began... Cundy says, so we were looking for some kind of subtle way to say which of these men might be human. You'll notice there's always an eye light, we call it, a little gleam in the eye of the actor. It gives light. So it gives life. Um, So 
I don't know much about cinematography, but I'm gathering that there, there, there might actually be sort of an eye light that you use to, to, to give a sparkle to someone's eyes and make mm-hmm. them feel alive. And apparently, in the very last scene of the movie, supposedly, if you look at the way it's shot, Kurt Russell's eyes have the life twinkle, and the other guy's character- Keith David, Childs. Childs doesn't. And so there's a little conspiracy online where people, of course, are never happy to accept an ending as the ending it pur- purports to be. Right. The whole point of the ending is that it's ambiguous. <laughs> that, that it's you, ambiguous. There's no way for either but part of the ambiguity. No. Well, and also Carpenter did shoot. Um, he shot an alternative ending where McCready is rescued and is having his blood tested um, and is is safe. But then there's some, I can't remember what the little cliffhanger thing is. I should have written it down what it was. I mean, this ending is so, this ending is this so. This ending is so perfect. You know, I understand the, the wanting to know for sure. But there is something about saying like, oh, see, since, since Childs didn't have that light in his eyes, that means it definitely has to be this, which the knowledge of that would completely to my mind rob sure the that ending of yes. of all that uh, of all that it has there's another theory that in the last scene uh you can see that kurt russell is breathing but keith david isn't breathing so i mean again these are like the layers of of where people will go just to because because you kind of want you 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 want to know. You, you, you want to be able to. Well, say it's like for the sure, alien. Like alien. You want. You want. You want there to be another movie. So yeah. you want a little slithering tail, or you want a little drop of blood that moves across a petri dish, or you want Keith David not to have a sparkle in his eye, or to his chest not be moving when he's staring, blinking at yeah. Kurt Russell, because that indicates there's more to come. Um, well, speaking of more to come in another movie, they of course did make in 2011 a yeah prequel. Was it a prequel? Well, I mean, yeah, my understanding from reading about it, they said it was about the Norwegian Mm. people at the beginning of the movie. So I guess it ends where this begins. I read it was not particularly good. In fact, I read it was pretty crappy. Mm. Well, they said that in 1982 about the thing as well, Chris. Who knows? Maybe I'm missing out. When Norwegian cinema finally gets its day. I don't know if I'm going to. Well, it's an American film. I think if they actually had some Norwegian. uh, Are there any great Norwegian filmmakers? Not that I can think of off the top of my head, but I mean, I'm sure there are some because it, there was, uh, cast your mind back five or six years, a sort of uh, Scandinavia was all yeah. the rage in sure. general, yeah. but I can't tell. You know, it's a great Norwegian film. Um, okay. You remember the film about the um, Somali hijacking of the cargo ship? Oh my God. I'm telling you, my mind, Chris, my mind is going. You, well, if you it's, can just it's happening in, for just a few. No, more it's minutes. happening in real time. Okay, it's happening in real time as we talk. That I'm losing my mind, and this must be what it's like to be Trump, Captain Phillips. Yes, with your favorite actor from Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, that's the one. Yeah. Um, yes, Tom Hanks. There's a film made that's kind of tells the other side of the story of the the, the Norwegian shipping line. I think it is. Oh, I see. Of of that um, same yeah, and it's a fantastic movie that's so good. Um, really, and I'm trying to find the name of it right now for you, Chris. Will you fill? This is where we call filling time. Well, so while, while we're doing it, I can tell you some of the uh, famous Norwegian film directors you might have heard of, like <laughs> talk about <Roar> filling. Ulthaug, <laughs> Eric Poppe, Morten Tildum, Harald Svart, Wow, Tommy Virkola, 
Joachim Trier, Joachim Roning, I guess the two Joachims. Oh, I, I found could it. I be mispronouncing it. It's Danish. Ah, well, see, that's... Is this probably a thing that the Norwegians have to deal with a lot? You know what? Uh, um, yes. Yes. <laughs> is that what you're going for? Full cast and crew is brought to you by Behemoth from Monkey Brain Comics. Behemoth is the dirty dozen meets the fly with little Spider-Man thrown in. Kids are turning into monsters and the government steps in to keep things quiet. Some are never heard from again, but others are forced on suicide missions on behalf of a world that hates them as part of Project Behemoth. Find it on monkeybraincomics.com or Comixology today. Let's see, anything else? Uh, we didn't talk too much about the uh, Morricone score. I remember seeing that on there, but I, then know, listening for it and being like, I don't know, this all... I think that the anecdote about... I think that that two-note synth phrase is probably Carpenter's. Yeah. And I didn't even really notice any other music other than that yeah. theme when it appeared. I think that's I what Morricone noticed- is referring to when he's like, why did you even yeah. hire me for this? Because I think at the very beginning where you have the uh, the spaceship crashing. Uh, yeah, which, why do we need that scene? That's, you know, that actually, I was gonna, I, I'm was i glad you brought that up. That, that sort of bothered me right off the bat because talk about like horrible effect, even for the time. Like, yeah. do we need that to say? The movie then shows us when they go visit right. the other station, it shows us that there's a, freaking spaceship buried in the ice. Yeah. I was reading that there's a, a, a sort of Lovecraftian trilogy in um, in Carpenter's work. Good, good use of Lovecraftian, by I, the way. I try to shoehorn it into any conversation. Yeah, I, I know you're a huge Lovecraft guy. Except for the whole racism stuff. Uh, well, when I say huge, the, I mean into the, you're, you're into the, the output. Yes. What's that thing? great Lovecraft movie from the 80s? With the, the one that you recommended effects. to me that I that I watched. <laughs> the one I that I recommended to you that I And now. then I went home and watched, and now I can't remember what it is. Oh, Jesus. Well, it's not Prince of Darkness, which is the John no. Carpenter. Um, Prince that, of Darkness. That's one of the other trilogy films. At the Mouth of Madness and this are sort of his unofficial, and I think he refers to them as such, sort of Lovecraftian trilogy because you have these space things that Lovecraft would call like the Elder Gods, but that, that are these- um, from beyond, uh, from beyond. About, yeah. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. the. I'm a sucker for that, just because yeah. seeing it. So that was the only thing that kind of justified it for me. Though it's just redundant. It just looks bad, and they and we learn and it. You learn later. it anyway. Yeah, I wonder, like, because I also was thinking it I might have watched tacked on, and maybe to, it feels like a studio note. Yeah, that's sort like of no like, one will get it. No one will get it unless we set the stage that there's a. 
there's a, an alien spaceship, right? But you know, we do show the whole sequence. We show the spaceship. Yeah, but we, they won't later know it's a in the spaceship, movie, right? Think it's but a kind of like snow. That's in the ship. middle of the movie, and I mean, if you don't get them in the first thirty seconds, John, I don't know if we're going to retain them in the audience. That's a knows, or maybe they were thinking like, look, Star Wars was big five years ago. <laughs> you know, show them some stars. Show them some stars in a and a wobbly disc-like spaceship that looks like a pie tin on a fishing rod. Yeah, that really that did. Look I mean, that was really like bad. Plan Nine from Outer Space. Yeah, you know, it no, was that bad. That was actually when I started watching it. I for, I I have no recollection of that scene. I wonder, like, <laughs> is this like, something that we, went we through multiple it? cuts? Like, maybe no, in a, the I DVD so. version, they tacked it on or I don't think so because I I mean I it's not a movie like Blade Blade Runner where there are so many multiple versions because of studio meddling this this right. wasn't that movie like they let him make the movie he wanted to make <laughs> but I, I think what it is 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 it's inconsequential and so we don't remember it when we remember the movie right. years later we forgive that that right. shot and it's funny because when it started I was like oh I, I was sort of worried well, this not have aged well. Does yeah, it, it was like, like this? you know, I, I have to. I had to watch the movie. Usually, I watch the movies on Wednesday night because mm-hmm. we tape this on a Thursday. But this week we're taping on a Wednesday, so man, it talk about a first word problem. It threw my <laughs> whole schedule off. I had to watch the thing on t- on Tuesday night. We had guests over at the house. We had a dinner, and I didn't get down to start watching it until ten thirty at night. That counts as late. I had time. to get up really early and. I was so that so when I saw that flying saucer shot, I was like, "Oh fuck, this is gonna." Because like you know, you have to watch the whole movie. I mean, I did sit through League of Their Own just All in order two hours and forty seven days of it, two hours and forty seven years of it, just to be conversant with you who recommended the movie. But I'm over that anyway. We didn't really do a lot of full cast and crew on this one, except just to say. It's populated by a great roster of character Absolutely, actors. Yes. Everyone is so good in it. Um, and and it's just I was I was I was like blown away by it all over again last night watching it again. I just it, it still retains a power and a uniqueness. And um yeah, man, it's the thing. Yeah. So I think that's a good out. I you know, outs are hard. Like, what do people do on podcasts? It's like a comedian who does the callback line, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like they introduce the callback line at the beginning of the act, they reference it in the middle, and then when they're finished, it's like not the punchline to the joke they just said, but they just go, it's kind of like a banana drinking coffee, and everyone knows that's the end, and then they go off. I've always thought that if I was ever a stand-up comedian, which I know would be a train wreck. What? (laughs) But if I was... I always thought my ending, I shouldn't even say this, because yeah, if, no if no stand-up comic is doing this right now, what they should do is do a meta thing, Chris, where they call out the hackiness of using the callback line as an out. And that's their out. It's both the callback yeah, yeah, line yeah. and a commentary on it. Did you see Oh Hello on Broadway? No. Do they do that? They have a similar thing, though. Um, do you know what that, that Nick Kroll and John Mulaney and- I have a bone to pick with that. Oh. In that I invented that. I'm, I, I, you are credited in the program. My friend I didn't Rick, say why, but- My friend Rick Brown and I invented that routine. In 1988, in Hampshire College, we invented a routine that we called My Wife and I. And as far as I can tell, I haven't seen this. Yeah. I've seen glips. It doesn't sound at glimpses. all similar, but- Well, it's like two sort of- quintessentially like New York 
theater goers having us a, a litany of, of complaints, which are real and imagined about mundane things having to do with the movies and the plays that they're seeing, except mm-hmm. they're actors or something, right? Kind of, you know, they're okay. sort of- But I'm not describing something to you that doesn't sound familiar. It doesn't sound unfamiliar. No, I will right. admit that you're calling it my wife and I, that that did throw me a little. Why? Because- how could it throw you before you even know? Well, that, exactly. Because well, you know what it is because you, you said it was know. going to be similar. Well, it is similar and, because it is, but I did not the the you title didn't know that from my the t- wife and I. No, no, no. I'm not saying it's similar in title. No, <laughs> I'm not saying that Rick and I came up with. I realize uh, that, but presumably oh, the goodbye, title is. And I'm upset <laughs> that they. You know what I'm saying is is that Rick Brown and I, starting in 1988 and continuing to this very day, had a routine. Okay, you know what? Let me be clear. Let me be transparent. It wasn't 1988. It was post college. Because it was when we were both living in New York, which would have been 1995 and on. So maybe Nick Kroll and John Mulaney were doing this in 1995. And it's just maybe. one of those comedic coincidences. That could be possible. Like I'm not going to accuse anyone of anything. Being, yeah, absolutely. But what I will tell you, Chris, is when I lived in New York in 1995, Rick Brown and I had a routine that we called walking around. We would walk all around this great Wait, city. Wait, so you're changing the title no, no, of it? I'm just giving you okay. some backstory here. Peeling back the onion. Okay. And when we would walk around, we would frequently end up at like Lincoln Center cinemas or the quad cinema, one of these art, New York art house cinemas, right? And we would go see the movies and there was always the prototypical or stereotypical New York, Upper West Side, Upper East Side, educated, erudite, film going couple in their 60s or older who were going to see the latest this or the latest that. And Rick would always do this routine while my wife and I saw... (laughs) You know, give me some esoteric European film, Chris. Um, the Seventh Seal. Well, my wife and I saw the re-release of The Seventh Seal. <laughs> I mean, well, of course, it's the Magna Carta of cinema, but my wife didn't care for it very much. That's the routine we used to do. That sounds similar, right? Mm, and these guys got a whole Broadway so. show based on. <laughs> less so now that I, now that I've heard that it. was that was a bad version of what we usually do. No, usually, oh, much no, funnier. No, no, listen, it was very funny. Don't it was, it was it was more like. Let me try it again. Like. My wife and I, have you seen, you know, it, I, I, it's, it's moment past, let's just say, but, but in the time, what it was, was we were doing this kind of over-educated theater goer, movie goer type. And then come to find out all these years later, these guys, much like someone's probably already stolen my idea for a meta ending to a comedian set. Basically, from what I could tell from the show, it's, it's basically two old actors on stage kind of talking in a similar way, except it's, oh, hello. Instead of my wife and I. <laughs> yeah, there's your out. You are, there's your out right there. <laughs> I'm not that far off, am I? Uh, I mean, definitely the accents you, you the two accents you just did. And that that difference is already big enough. <laughs> and the very fact that uh, neither of them have a wife at the time. I think one of them has reference to an ex-wife. Okay. Right. Well, again, this is oh, you're absolutely of, right. This is part of the charm of us, Chris, is that I'm going to stake out uninformed. <laughs> firmly held positions. And you are going to gently remind me that they have no grounding in reality whatsoever. That's why hey, this you works. Got it. They- That's why this works between you and I. Okay. <laughs> it's very Norwegian in that sense. I wonder if they have podcasts in Norway. Is podcasting a global phenomenon, Chris? It absolutely Chris? is. Though I will say, I was just listening to a podcast that was talking about how Britain, the UK, has I'm a surprisingly- uh, I know Trump needs that delineation sometimes. Did you I, see that quote of the- Yeah, yeah Britain, oh England, God. they used to call it's it like England. It's like someone whatever. was handed a note card with like four bullet points. 
And he sort of mangles that and then and then as if he's demonstrating great knowledge, gets it wrong six ways to Sunday, and then that's his quote on Great Britain slash the UK. Yeah, he, he didn't fantastic. do his like report for third grade. <laughs> exactly. Where yes. he was like, okay, here's the country you're assigned. Give me five <laughs> facts about England. He's like, five. So you saw what about British podcasting? Oh, that they actually don't have a particularly high uh, amount of podcasts. That We're it's not moving the show to London, Chris. <laughs> Next week. Because the, they're so used to the high quality of radio. Oh, yeah. And that their that. radio thing is sort of, the need kind of isn't there for independent, for independent podcasts. Yeah, because all these cool podcasts here are just cool radio shows that you get to do. So, but, it's, but it's people who aren't getting hired to do the radio. Because right. radio is also not as present or as big of a, um, a form here as it is in the UK because right. it's government subsidized there. Yeah. Uh, Let's not get into politics, Chris. Listen, you took, you're free you to, took a couple swipes at our at our president. <laughs> well, I was going to say you're free to you know dream up any society you want. That's that's not my business to criticize that. <laughs> what? A, yeah, thanks, thanks, <laughs> thanks for allowing me inside my mind to have whatever utopia I want. Oh, it's sweet up there, though. Well, I'm just saying your 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 point about the utopia of British radio broadcasting is that it's state sponsored, and that allows. That allows the greatness to flourish. That's the point that you're making. Uh, well, the, yeah, I guess. It's also, wow. some, yeah. Is there a mosquito in here? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm getting punchy, Chris. I was about to say, like, we hot, already have so many too. good outs. I think the best out, well, I won't give you another one. I, I, you know what? I don't want to give you too many good outs because then it'll be hard to choose. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I uh, just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.